The recent shootings at Virginia Tech that left 33 dead are still very much in our minds. That's 32 people who were killed at the hand of Cho Sung Hui, who also took his own life. Uh, surely this violent eruption represented some kind of massive failure of the nation's system, or at least Virginia's system, for caring for the mentally ill. Cho had repeatedly been identified as somebody who needed help, but he never got that help. Today we're looking at the American mental health care system. Very few people with mental illnesses will become violent, but how many of them, like Cho, might suffer for years? Uh, not violent, but unrecognized, ill, in pain, and never getting the help they need. Welcome to the Washington Health Report. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. Here to help us understand all this is Andrew Sperling, Legislative Director for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, the nation's largest consumer and family organization representing people with mental illness. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Morning, Paul. How are you? Good. Um, what does the shooting at Virginia Tech tell us in, in, in sort of the broadest terms about the state of the mental health care system in this country? First, it tells us that it's a fragmented system with a real lack of accountability in terms of how treatment is delivered and how we engage in treatment people with the most severe forms of mental illness uh, who experience paranoid delusions, uh, auditory hallucinations, hearing voices, other types of things that uh, can lead them to situations where they can, in extreme circumstances, become violent or become a, a harm to themselves or others. Now, I mentioned the question of violence in my introduction. Um, many people worry about mentally ill people becoming violent. And of course, mentally ill people who are not violent generally don't make the news. It's the violence that makes the news. How common is violence among people with mental illness? Extremely rare. Extremely rare. And it's usually associated with factors such as co-occurring substance abuse uh, and in prolonged absence of treatment. In other words, people not taking their medication. Now, when something happens like that at Virginia Tech, often in, in prior situations like this, we've seen, for example, at Columbine, I think there was less indication that those two students uh, might become violent. Sometimes there's no indication. It's a surprise. Given that violence is extremely rare among people with mental illness, here was a case where a student, there were multiple uh, signs and suggestions, multiple faculty people involved, even court-ordered uh, mental health treatment. Were people uh, right not to, I mean, should people have anticipated the violent outburst? Violence is very, very difficult to predict. And I think the challenge here is not so much whether violence was predicted, but whether or not the treatment system in Virginia, the public mental health treatment system where Mr. Cho had been ordered into court order treatment, whether or not there was any follow-up. Where the system failed here is the inability to actually have providers be held responsible for ensuring that once court-ordered treatment took place, was ordered by the court, that there was follow-up and engagement with that individual so that he could get the treatment he needed and all this could very well have been avoided. By providers, you mean the, the health care providers or the college administration or who had the responsibility there and, and failed to follow through on it? In, in this case, in, the, in, in Virginia, the public mental health system is governed by what are called community service boards that are regional boards, authorities, if you will, public mental health authorities. And, and what should have happened in this case, is once court-ordered treatment took place or the court ordered it, there should have been aggressive and assertive follow-up by that community services board to make sure that Mr. Cho got into treatment and, and took the medication that was prescribed to him by the doctor. Now, if we accept that, uh, and I think from other people I've talked to, most people would agree that violence is difficult to predict, as you say. The other question is, should people have recognized that this was a kid who was sick and in need of suffering? I mean, that seems 
pretty clear. I don't think that was hard to predict based on what I read. Do you agree? Well, what we may able to find out that there are indications that he was extremely troubled uh, over the last few months, that he at one point uh, had sent threatening, I think, emails or messages to, to several co-eds at Virginia Tech. There were professors that were concerned. And that happened, and he was recommended that he follow up for treatment. And he did actually go to the campus counseling center and was referred to a mental health provider off campus. So that actually worked quite well. What really failed, quite frankly, was once court-ordered treatment was mandated, no one ever followed up. Now, is it fair to say, I mean, again, he seemed to be a fairly extreme case because of these threatening emails, the quite unusual behavior, you know, a semester at a time without opening his mouth and so forth. In lesser cases or less obvious cases, how well does the system do at picking up people with mental illness? Forget about violence for the moment, just picking up people who are sick and suggesting that they seek treatment. Uh, not very good. Uh, there's, in, in some states, it's better than others. But the reality is that untreated mental illness is an enormous issue for our country. Uh, and in many communities, uh, someone has to really deteriorate to the point where they're a harm to themselves or others before the system will intervene. And families really struggle with this, when, particularly with an adult with mental illness, where the family knows the individual is deteriorating, they're not taking their medication, and they're at risk of becoming homeless, falling in the criminal justice system, all types of other problems. And the system really, quite frankly, refuses to intervene until that individual has deteriorated to the point where they're harm, imminent harm to themselves or others. Uh, the Washington Post has had a couple of interesting pieces about Cho's family, including one in which they talk about how his mother had tried to find a church that would exercise the demons and so forth. Clearly, his family knew about this as well. Uh, what is the family's responsibility? Shouldn't they help be held accountable? I don't know how you necessarily hold families accountable. I think in most cases, families, family loved ones of someone with serious mental illness actually struggle every day to try and, and get their loved one, their child, their sibling to engage in treatment. The, the law can't hold them responsible necessarily because most families do everything they can to engage their loved one in treatment. Um, they often have to go to court to petition for court-ordered treatment, which is a very difficult thing for families to do, but many of them sometimes feel like there's, uh, the, the system isn't responding. This would be in the case of a sibling or an adult child or something like that. Precisely, yes. Right. Uh, there's a big health care debate suddenly again in Washington. Uh, what role does the uh, insurance situation play in this? And, 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 of course, I'm referring to the fact that many mental illnesses are not covered as extensively as uh, other illnesses. We need to delineate really some distinction in the system here, because the system that most people with serious and persistent mental illness run is a public sector system, uh, where it's, it's publicly funded programs like, like Medicaid, for example. Uh, it is publicly accountable at public agencies, such as county departments of mental health or community mental health centers, that by and large are funded with public dollars as opposed to private health insurance. Uh, it's generally group health insurance plans that are provided by private employers and administered in the private sector, which is really a very, very different system. But that private sector system, by and large, imposes limitations and restrictions on treatment for mental illness that they don't otherwise apply to treatment, say, for cancer, diabetes, or heart disease. There are, I think, are several proposals in Congress to try to address this. Can you, can you run those down just very quickly for us and tell us what you think is the best approach in your view? Okay, be happy to. There have been bills now going back almost 17, 18 years in the Congress that would require health plans to cover treatment for mental illness on the same terms and conditions as any other disease. We call this insurance parity. Senator Pete Domenici from New Mexico has been really the preeminent champion of this in the Congress. And we have separate bills in the House and the Senate uh, that are now moving forward. They are very, very similar. There's some slight differences in terms of how the bills would interact with the 42 state laws out there 
the laws in 42 states that require equitable coverage for treatment for mental illness. And they're working through the differences between those House and Senate bills. And we're very optimistic that this bill can get through this year and be signed by the president. Really? For after 17 or 18 years, you're optimistic? How do you, <laughs> how do you manage that? <laughs> well, I, I think we've, 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 the, the new majority in the House, I think, is, is, is more receptive to this bill than the old majority was in the House. And this year, we've also reached out, Senator Domenici and Senator Kennedy from Massachusetts and others have reached out to try and engage the traditional opponents of this legislation, the organizations representing employers and health insurance plans, and they're on board on the Senate bill, which is really an exciting development to have the opponents of this bill now uh, essentially supportive of it. <laughs> the opponents are supporters. Good. That, that sounds like one of those really Washington things. <laughs> on this. And I think what, one of the things that's happened, quite frankly, is, is the science has advanced and demonstrated that there's really no medical or scientific justification for a health plan to impose limitations on coverage for schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that doesn't also apply to cancer, diabetes, and heart disease. Now, you mentioned uh, a minute ago that 42 states have some sort of a mental health parity bill. So if that's the case, why is this federal bill so urgent? A terrific question. And here, here's the real answer. The real answer is that there's a federal law out there called ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act, that allows employers to self-insure, essentially set up their own insurance plan. And when they do this, they become completely exempt from state regulation. Now, you would think, Paul, this is just sort of a minor loophole with maybe a few thousand people. It's not. There are 82 million Americans who get their private health insurance through these ERISA self-insured plans. So a majority of people out there with private group health insurance, uh, and many don't even know that they're self-insured, and they are, they're exempt from state regulation. These 42 state laws cannot touch them, which is why it's so critically important to get a federal parity law to reach those 82 million Americans. Uh, so this is what we would call a large loophole, not a small loophole. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't even call it a loophole. <laughs> it <is> a <laughs> um, now, we're, uh, many in our audience are physicians and other health professionals. What would be your sort of parting message to them uh, about what they can do to help remedy this situation? Well, I would tell them, and we've had recent studies out there uh, that have demonstrated that the, actually the majority of mental health care that's provided in this country is not done in what we call the mental health specialty sector, meaning by psychiatrists or public mental health agencies. It's largely provided in primary care settings. So there's a lot more we need to do as a nation to educate internists and, and primary care providers and, and other healthcare professionals like nurses to recognize mental illness, to help intervene early. Because the science tells us that the earlier we intervene, the better outcomes we're going to get. So we don't, we avoid people really deteriorating to the point that Mr. Cho did. And that's why we really need the mental health field to work closer with primary care physicians and other, the, the primary care healthcare system to really intervene early uh, and get better care for people with mental illness. Well, that's all the time we have. I'm happy to end on, a, on an optimistic note. We've been talking to Andrew Sperling of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Thanks for being with us, Andrew Sperling. Thank you. I'm your host, Paul Rayburn. You have been listening to the Washington Health Report on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thanks for listening.